Hello and welcome to the Movie Moolah podcast. It is the podcast about money in the film industry, where we have serious people on to talk about serious topics in an often silly way. Um, with me today is Josh Doak, who is who was a partner with me at Mutiny Pictures, and before that we worked together on his film called Goodland which was his directorial debut. Josh, how are you? Good to have you here. I'm good. Thanks for having me, Ben. I don't know about all this serious people talk here, but <laughs> you're very kind of you to have me on anyway. Well, I mean, keep in mind, I'm always here. So that's a, uh... <laughs> false advertising right at the top. I of the know show. completely. It's just, uh, yeah. <laughs> but jokes aside, um, yeah, so you've worked for a while in distribution uh, since Mutiny, but I don't think that was ever your goal. Um, why don't you tell everybody listening or watching to uh, just how you got started in the industry? Yeah, so from a fairly young age, I knew I wanted to be a filmmaker. I think I got my first DV mini dv camcorder when i was 14 and um i started off by just doing some very rudimentary editing in final cut pro i was in a advanced art class and i told my art teacher that i wanted to uh, edit a football highlight video and he at, i mean this is dating me a little bit but at the time he just threw the actual final cut pro manual at me and said learn we, we had it and <laughs> This was, you know, YouTube was just starting to show up, but it was primarily like funny cat videos and not, you know, the, what they have mm -hmm. now where you can have a 12, 12 year old in Idaho teach you everything you need to know about <laughs> any piece of software. Mm -hmm. So I just kind of like learned, you know, this was old, like I was converting VHS tapes to digital and editing on Final Cut Pro and putting it to some really terrible music. Um, and what music? Oh my god, I don't even know what, what was popular back in like 2006. Like I don't know. Oh. And it was all just like bad rock, bad rock music. You know, mm. like what they call dad rock now, probably. That that sounds about right. Yeah, I've got some <laughs> <Yeah>. of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah best uh, leave those bands out of it I suppose <laughs> uh yeah and then I mean from there I always had an interest in art I was I was cartooning I was I was drawing comic strips from a from an early age and and I knew I wanted to do something creative it kind of grew into film I told my parents I wanted to go to film school they were very supportive uh which is you know probably not easy for a lot of parents to hear that their kid wants to go to film school um especially I come from a very small town, so mm -hmm. not a lot of. What's the avenues. name of that town again? Oh, it's Goodland. Yeah, yeah, we're gonna come yeah. back to that. But, we'll circle uh, back to that. Yeah, yeah. and the town of four thousand in western Kansas. So as you can imagine, not a lot of uh, film careers there. Mm -hmm. So at the time, you know, other people would always ask me, "What are you gonna do with that?" When I told them I was going to film school. Anyway, flash forward, went to film school, graduated, um, met some some really great people and you made a lot of short films a lot of really bad short films some okay short films getting better and ended up forming a production company right out of college with two of my best friends from film school uh called rock haven films mm -hmm. 
and then from there we just we did commercial you know work we were doing a lot of um like promotional content for for like companies local companies um we worked for a teen travel organization called rustic pathways for about mm-hmm. seven years so i traveled the world camera in hand filming you know promotional content for them and then um finally in in 2015 uh i wrote and directed my feature film goodland and uh that's where i met you um uh, you know i've always wondered we like didn't... never really we didn't met 15 no that's when i shot it so it would have okay. been like 2017 2016 when we that sounds met. about that sounds more right but yeah we still haven't met in person have we no that's insane yeah, yeah. <laughs> keep forgetting that you're the only i think you're the only member of mutiny that i didn't um yeah yeah wonders that's... of a digital age for sure I know, yeah um all right so yeah no um you contacted me about goodland as a producer's rep um yeah. after your festival run if memory serves which yeah. is why we're looking at 2016 2017 somewhere in there it's probably right before AFM 2016, if I had to guess. Yeah, I actually believe it was AFM 2017. Um, I, too, yeah. I, I heard you interviewed on the Indie Film Hustle podcast. Mm-hmm. And then I bought your book and I read your book. And I reached out just cold on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is, you know. Just when I actually paid I- attention to Twitter. Yeah. Um, <laughs> just some advice to some filmmakers out there shoot your shot just message people because they might get back to you uh and then you got back to me and then you ended up taking goodland to mm-hmm. afm in 2017 and that's where we ultimately ended up getting our distribution deal that sounds right and i think that was also the first time i met uh michael ingram at that point um yeah. was at that meeting that i ended up selling goodland on and a lot of what sold it was the trailer um which does inform later parts of the story. Yeah. Um, so what did you think of your first outing in distribution as a filmmaker? Well, I was, I mean, I, I think you know this because you were doing, you know, you were a producer rep, you were repping a lot of other films. And I think mm-hmm. Goodland didn't go seamlessly by any stretch of the imagination, but I would say like for, I, I, I shot the film I was I was happy with what it was, you know, for that low of a budget that we we made that film for mm-hmm. and how it ended up, you know, coming out and looking. A lot of great people did a lot of great work on that film. I'm I'm proud of it to this day. But I knew what I had on my hands, you know, like I, I looked at it and I was like, okay, like this isn't going to take the world by storm. Mm-hmm. But I think it's decent and there's an audience for it. And, you know, you helping me get distribution and then that actually going on and you know it was it's low you know kind of lower end distribution for films like this and you really mm-hmm. need a team that cares about the film that's going out into the world because mm-hmm. things can get lost so easily so at the so, time uh, yeah uh, just one point of clarification um i think what you mean is that it was films like this get a lower tier of distribution than a lot of filmmakers expect. Um, yes. What ended up happening with Goodland was atypical and on the higher end in that. I, yeah. Yeah. Um, 
it, and, how many screens did it get overall? Were we told? I think it was like ten screens. Mm-hmm. Ten that ten screens right. across the U.S. Ten to twelve, I believe, was something like that. Um, and I mean, like this is the that's exactly what I meant, Ben. By by mm-hmm. like you know, I was I I came in with my expectations fairly low, and I think mm-hmm. you can attest to this that like everything that happened with Goodland, I was just like happy because mm-hmm. it was more than I expected. You know, it's like we. I retained the theatrical rights for in our distribution deal mm-hmm. um, initially because I just wanted to show it in my hometown theater in Goodland. The you know there's a built-in audience there as one could imagine, and I just wanted to be able to do that. Well, come to find out, you know our distributor wanted to put it on ten screens. Well, mm-hmm. that didn't conflict with the the screenings in Goodland, but like that's point one. I didn't think that I I, I didn't think that this film was gonna go to any screens so I was already happy and then that just kind of kept happening as things got mm-hmm. you know as I started finding out more and more about what was happening all of the all of the platforms that it was going to be on when it was released on TVOD mm-hmm. um, and then eventually finding out about the SVOD deal which it went to Showtime for two years and mm-hmm. you know at, at that point like I said that was all just like cherry on top because I I really just wanted people to be able to see it. I wanted to be able to point to an Amazon page and say like you can rent or buy it here. Mm-hmm. But then these things just kind of kept happening. And then you know international sales were another thing. We got an airline deal. We got two airline deals. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden this little film that you know I just wanted people to go to Amazon to watch was now on airlines and people could watch it for free. You know there was a small theatrical in the United Arab Emirates. You know, I remember getting photos of like the digital poster outside of a theater and like, again, just couldn't be happier. (laughs) No expectations going into this. So, you know, since then, having worked on so many other films on the distribution side of things, I understand how fortunate we were that, you know, it was was a little bit of a different time then, you know, even let's see, that would have been 2018. So, you Mm -hmm. know, even five years ago things you know the landscape was just completely different entirely Um, it's different than it was even two years ago i mean that was in covid so it's not exactly one to one but it's evolving rapidly yeah yeah and so i was just you know pretty pretty pleased with my first outing in distribution and then you know i'm sure you'll kind of get to this but like when we formed mutiny um i was brought into kind of just do what I had done, you know, fair, I, I would say well on Goodland. I was, I was yeah. trying to do the promotional content. I was, I was doing trailers and, and, and I will say, you know, like the, the trailer for Goodland was cut by my team. Mm-hmm. Um, that wasn't just me. You know, I have a great editor and business partner at Rock Haven Films, Edward Schroer, and he, he cut that trailer and we had input from other filmmakers, um, Ben Burghart, who I've, you know, worked with, with for over a decade. And so like, mm-hmm. we really have like, I have a group of filmmakers that I trust and we can workshop trailers and show things to and get ideas from. And so like with that and the marketing materials as well, the posters and mm-hmm. all of that, you know, I kind of came up with a bunch of filmmakers that were willing to share their ideas and their critiques and and their skill sets to help do that. So that's really how I cut my teeth doing that. So when we got to mutiny, you know, I was, I was ready to 
to be cutting trailers and and helping with the direction of the art and and the marketing aspects of the distribution. Yeah, I mean, there are still. I still send you my trailer work when I have it. Um, that's a I was trying to figure out how to phrase it, but I think that's enough of an <laughs> endorsement. Um, the, I, and uh, I appreciate it. Yeah. Um, and if you want to see some of Josh's work, the YouTube for Mutiny is still live, isn't it? It is, yeah. And at least the vast majority of those trailers are his. Um, I know you didn't get into uh, filmmaking to be a distributor. Um, I didn't exactly either, but I accepted that fate long ago, Um, at least on the distribution end. Um, But given that you worked there for a couple years, um, what would you do differently in making your next film? Oh, wow. Yes. So this, so I should say that I'm not out of the filmmaking game. I'm still currently writing and hoping to producing and hoping to direct again, Mm -hmm. you know, sometime in the near future. So it's not, this is something that like, I've been telling people that working in distribution for the amount of time that I did was almost like going to grad school (laughs) because it like opens up a whole different side of the industry that so many filmmakers only get to glimpse you know, they just get to look, like peer into because they're they're only making a project every, I mean, at the at the most one a year, you know, mm-hmm. and it's like probably not that for most people, especially on the independent end of things where it takes a lot of time and money and, you know, the casting is, is a huge issue. So like learning that side of things is a lot harder because you, you make a film and then you learn how to distribute it. And then, you know, it could be a year or two years before you get to like take another crack at it. Mm-hmm. But here we were working at a distribution company and we're doing it constantly. It's like what we do. And so you can start to feel like what works and what doesn't. But it it, it changed how I look at film, even going clear back to the script stage. Mm-hmm. You know, as I'm writing a script now, and I know like there are people who, who say like, you know, don't do this. But it's like I'm not necessarily writing for what's popular but I, mm-hmm. I'm writing in mind of like, okay, what is going to help get this film made and what is going to help get this film distributed? Because at the end of the day, this is a business, you know, it, mm-hmm. it, they call it show business for a reason. It's not, it, if you, if you just want to make an artistic film for yourself and you can do it for cheap, that's fine. I mean, it's probably, you know, you have to take into consideration what distributors and what audiences actually want to see if you want to make this a career because you have to have a chance to make another one. Mm-hmm. And told- so, oh, go ahead. Yeah. Could not agree more. Um, Go ahead. Yeah. I was just saying that, you know, so I, I now think about those things in a way and, and, you know, I think about the, the marketing materials early, you know, uh, you know, when you're, mm-hmm. when you're writing a script, I'm thinking about, okay, what genre is this? Like, is this going to attract actors or could it potentially attract name actors? Are there roles mm-hmm. in this for people who will bring in the money to help get this made and then not only get it made, but get it distributed because that, that makes a difference. And we saw that time and time again at mutiny yeah, where we would have great films, um, you know, and I, I don't want to drag any genres down, but you know, uh, dramas are really hard to market if you don't have a name in them. 
they just they are we had some yeah. great dramas so are come across yeah we had yeah. we had great dramas and comedies come across our desk and we distributed some of them and we tried just as hard on those films if not harder mm-hmm. than some of the other films and it's it was impossible to get anyone to really bite or care because you know when when you're distributing a horror film or an action film, you know, you can get away with it. it. It helps if there's a star in it, but you can get away with it a little bit because the genre is the star, you know, people will watch horror, people will watch action. And that's just, just the way it is. Mm-hmm. But, you know, dramas, it's a little bit more difficult to get anyone to even just click on the thumbnail to watch it. Um, yeah. If, if they don't see Meryl Streep's, face on the cover it's it's hard and and that's not for anyone listening to this i don't want to discourage your your writing or 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 directing or creating a drama i would just encourage you to, to to think beyond you know getting the film in the can and getting it edited and and think to like do you have an avenue for this to be seen do you have an avenue to take this out and have someone you know like care about it um mm-hmm. and and i mean i think i just think that's responsible filmmaking because whether you're Great. putting your own money into it or you are asking investors to put their money into it i i really believe that you know part of our job as as filmmakers as directors as producers is to protect your investors money their investment yeah from a legal perspective, I believe that to be true, although that's not legal advice and I'm not a lawyer. Um, <laughs> but the um, – so a couple things on that front. Um, first, one exercise that I actually really like that came out of, I think, Amazon in its early early days as a company is to write the press release at the beginning of the product development stage. So if you're writing a script and you are figuring out exactly how to structure it, maybe you should consider drafting a press release because it'll help you identify who is actually going to uh, watch the film in the end and how you're going to get it out there. I'm not saying that has to be a thing, but it is an exercise that I found very valuable and I still do for my own endeavors. But the um, other thing on that is... Your distribution plan, um, whatever for whatever sort of film it is, drama, anything, should not be, I'll get into Sundance and I'll get a great distribution deal. I know everybody says that, and that's because it's true. Um, only about 2% of films get into Sundance. But the thing beyond that that most people don't talk about is even if you are one of that 2% of submitted films, only about 5 to 10% of those get distribution out of Sundance and a lot of times those would have gotten distribution anyway it's important to think about how you're going to find the not only a distributor but the right distributor um as a filmmaker from the earliest of stages I Um, couldn't agree more and I I that's shifted completely when I made Goodland it was like (laughs) what can I make for the littlest for the for the least amount of money Mm-hmm. you know, and, and make it interesting and make it something that I would want to watch. And then I just went out and did it. And I was just like, man, I sure hope someone wants to see this. And, and 
that's that's not a business plan. You're not going to impress any investors um, or anyone working on your film with the hope and a prayer, <laughs> you know, business plan. Like just like you said, like the let's get into Sundance. I call it the the uh, the obligatory sacrificial hundred dollar, you know, <laughs> to the Sundance gods offering to the Sundance gods because you know it's like they'll take your money and like go for it because i mean like i'm not telling anyone not to submit to sundance because there's always a chance but yeah. that can't be your business model it just can't um it it just leaves you wide open for i mean disappointment more <laughs> more than anything else really the other thing about these festivals the top tier festivals is that it is a bit of a uh, insider's game yeah. And you need to have an insider sales game in order to make it work because most of those 2% that get into Sundance come from people who were able to call the head of programming or at least a full programmer. And there are some that make it that aren't that way, but most of them are. And it's important just because I'm saying that doesn't mean I like it. Mm. It just is an acknowledgement of the fact that it's true. And I do want to keep that in mind to anybody who might be listening. Um, so, yeah, I would yeah. say that everything we're saying here doesn't mean that Ben and I endorse these practices. It's just <laughs> it's the harsh realities of of what the industry is like right now. I wish everyone had a fair shake at these major film festivals because I've seen films that. I mean, we all know of films that are better than what they're actually programming, but some of the things that they're programming had this person directing it or that person producing it. And, and you know, I'm not big on the whole, like, uh, you know, there are gatekeepers in this industry, but I don't have a chip on my shoulder about it. It's just like, you should be aware of it so that you can set into place action so you can help navigate that system. If there are gatekeepers, there are things that you can do to help to, to help set yourself up for success, you know, and that may be making a couple films, each one getting progressively better with a bigger budget until you're ready to, to approach and, and making contacts all along the way by doing that until you've made your third or fourth film. And that's the one that finally, like you have enough contacts and then you're the one who's reaching out to a program or you met on at a film festival for another film. And you're the one who's like has eyes on the film Mm -hmm. that you made because of your hard work for the five to 10 years before that. I'm yeah. not saying this to be discouraging. I'm just saying like, this is, this is how it works. And like, mm -hmm. you should, you should know it and you should, you should play into the system. Yeah. I mean, it's not so much about knowing the rules of the game so much as knowing what field you're playing on and what yeah. objects are immovable because rules can change. But and they do all the time in this. All the time. Yeah. But yeah. It's a... Um... Yeah, and actually for more on that, uh, anybody listening, you should check out the Manny Serrano episode here because we actually have a whole like 20-minute block around festival and how to use festivals on there. Yeah. So um, what was the biggest thing you learned out of being involved at the highest levels of a distribution company that you did not know as a filmmaker? I think I just, I think what I probably didn't know as much was just how 
how hard if you if okay let me rephrase this if you if you get a distributor that you trust and you're working with and Mm -hmm. and you know sometimes that can be hard to come by i know a lot of people are on these distributor facebook groups and there are predatory distributors out there but for the most part these people are trying are doing their best they're trying if your film succeeds their company succeeds so they're they are trying their best they are they are they are doing what they know what to do in a changing landscape as ben said is changing all the time you know it's just like we're seeing it happen right now like all the prices of the of the subscription-based services are going up right now and they're consolidating and they're taking less films and they're moving things in-house and they're changing the way they're doing things and they're shifting around you know all of these things these strikes have will have Mm -hmm. a lasting impact on the industry for years to come what they're taking what they're not taking what they're looking for and so like this is constantly evolving so when your distributor is working with you and you you maybe don't think you're getting, you know, hopefully they didn't over promise, but like, maybe you don't think you're getting what you deserve or what your film deserves. Just know that they are behind the scenes pulling every lever that they can to try to get your film to succeed because they want that too. Mm -hmm. They do not want your film to fall flat. The better your film does, the better it makes them look. The, The more laurels they get, the more, logos they can add to their to their web page the more bragging rights they have the more social media followers they get if they get a film that hits they're not trying to just take your film and and do nothing with it they're Mm -hmm. trying and and i guess to just go back to your question what did i not know is like i guess i never it's not that i didn't know it it's that i didn't think about how hard every how high, how hard this side of the business is, mm-hmm. you know, and it's built on relationships, whether that's getting filmmakers press, mm-hmm. whether that's getting platforms and streaming services to actually watch the film, whether that's talking to film festival programmers to try to get the the film programmed in certain festivals, coming up with marketing plans to get the film out there, get it seen, thinking outside of the box because, you know, this film maybe doesn't have a star, but it's great. So what can we do to get people to care about it? You know, Mm -hmm. like maybe we can have a theatrical, you know, uh, a limited theatrical run in university towns that start at midnight if it's a special type of horror film, you know, just like Mm -hmm. anything that you can do to think outside of the box. Hopefully your distributors are doing that are thinking about these things or having these conversations but it's hard it's it's hard on our side too you know it's it's mm-hmm. it's one of those things or it's just like you you make this film and and you're just like okay now just like the world wants to see this mm-hmm. and the harsh reality is that a lot of the times the world doesn't want to see it and maybe it's that they don't it's not that they don't want to see it it's that they don't know it exists and so vying for their attention is yeah. extraordinarily time-consuming and often costly. It, and that's just like what you said. That's We're no longer just competing with a slate of films that are coming out to theaters on a certain date anymore. We're competing with every film that's ever been created ever because it's available somewhere on some streaming service. So if you want to watch something, that's now available. Or if, you know, And so you're competing against every film ever. Mm-hmm. And you're also competing against everything that's not a film. You're competing against TikTok now. 
I mean, how many people, I'm sure everyone listening to this either knows somebody or is somebody who five minutes into a film pulls out their phone and is on TikTok while mm-hmm. a movie's playing in front of them, you know, on Netflix. Yeah, my wife does that. The um irks me to no end, honestly. <laughs> but um the uh I, I you're totally right. And it's not just about I mean, it's not just about the feature films that you're competing against. It's about everything. I have some younger friends um who are more like in their twenties. Um and I'm continually surprised by how few of them actually watch movies in the way we talk about movies. And that is something that is important to think about and just how the, how younger people's idea of content is changing dramatically. And I know that we're not supposed to say the word content when referring to movies. I don't care. It's a, um, (laughs) yeah. Well, films are no longer at the center of the culture and that's Mm -hmm. really hard for people like us to hear who like got into this industry because we revered films and certain films like we wanted we wanted to be able to be part of that conversation um and that's Mm -hmm. just not exactly how it works now now i mean things are always shifting too right like i know i keep saying that but you know they're gonna come in and out of favor like we had a great summer with barbenheimer like like no one but really, it was basically those two that. movies that took the entire box office. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. But it, I guess it does show that a film can still be mm-hmm. kind of like the center of culture, though, you know, not always, I guess. And I mean, like this will, I mean, this will date this podcast maybe, but just this past weekend, you know, Five, Night at, Five Nights at Freddy's mm-hmm. just did amazing numbers and it was day and date, meaning that, it was released on Peacock the same day that it came to theaters mm-hmm. and it did $70 million in, in business. Like I'm not surprised. There are certain movies that are much better experienced as a group and the theater is still basically the most affordable way we can do that as a society. Yeah. Um, but it's a lot harder to get people out to the movies than it used to be. And that was marketed towards, you know, teenagers like mm-hmm. it was a pg-13 horror film you know that based off of a video game that was very is very popular um mm-hmm. so i mean like it it can still happen you know i think show our age because we're i don't want to bemoan the way things used to be because we're I mean, not I quite think, at grandpa stage yet <laughs> if you go if you go back and listen to film conversations in the early nineties, they probably sounded a lot like they do right now. You know, when Quentin Tarantino came onto the scene and people were mm-hmm. complaining about the death of, you know, movies of a certain type. Uh, and now we pine for what that was. It's, it's just cyclical is all I'm saying. Things change. Yeah, no, this will change. And, in the late 80s uh when a lot of the models for distribution that are still around in some way shape or form they've changed they've evolved along the way but at that time the film industry was significantly larger than the video game industry and that is 
no longer even remotely close to true. Yeah. And it's but we're all we're also competing with those other time sinks. Mm-hmm. And we have to keep in mind as creators and I mean, maybe I'm not helping by having a podcast because that's mm-hmm. content, but you know what? I like it, so I'm keeping doing it. So Hey, I mean, people can't watch movies while they drive, or they shouldn't. I don't advise it. <laughs> Even the talkiest of talk <sighs> movies, you should not do. It's, yeah. Yeah. Ill-advised. <laughs> also, don't watch YouTube while you're driving, but it's also on the other platforms, so. Yeah. And um, you can listen to it. Yes. Um Got that listenable tag and everything. Um, So what was the biggest surprise out of Goodland? Like, I know you went in with a really small, with really reasonable expectations. And frankly, that is what other filmmakers should do as well. But like... Do you remember when I called you from a coffee shop after a meeting that I had to leave the market for because I didn't want to say too close to the market to tell you that you got offered a theatrical? Yeah, I mean, that was probably between that and. So there's two moments that come to mind. It was that one because we were just laughing because I held back theatrical. And I was Mm -hmm. like, not because I was being selfish or crazy but just because i had a very practical reason for doing so i had a single theater that wanted to play it and i just didn't want to be told Mm -hmm. no essentially so so negotiating that back into the contract was good um Mm -hmm. and you know it gave it did give me the leverage to show it in my hometown theater so not that anyone would have stopped me uh like everyone was cool about that but that was probably the biggest because i just did not think i mean ben you and i had conversations we were both like this isn't a theatrical movie we know that no it's don't don't worry about it (laughs) my since working with michael um my definition of what it is and is not a theatrical movie has shifted um but it's also important to even that even with those shifted expectations not everything is a theatrical and absolutely yeah yeah and you still have to be willing to put in the time and effort and have the contacts to make it work and there are very few people who can do that still yeah because you know just sidebar when you're taking a film that no one's ever heard of out to even just 10 cities theatrically there's a without proper marketing or advertising there's a good chance that three people will show up and yeah. that's a risk that's you know that's a risk that some of these independent theaters take if they like the film or well, you know certain promises are made on what are what a marketing budget or advertising budget in in a certain city looks like and that helps or mm-hmm. or there's some appeal for a city you know there's a built-in fan base in this area this film was shot here and or you know it could even be something like the DP's family lives <laughs> you know in this city and all their they're gonna get all their friends that come out and see it you know and that's something that like i think good distributors will have those conversations with filmmakers and like Mm -hmm. the filmmaker is one of the in my mind still to this day the filmmaker when you're working with a, a a low budget independent 
film and you want people mm-hmm. to see it, the filmmaker is one of the biggest assets because mm-hmm. they know their audience and they've they've built this thing and they're going to care more than anyone else and they're going to you know help you push so like having those conversations with the filmmaker and building a plan around the release or around mm-hmm. the filmmakers uh you know like assets mm-hmm. or or you know um audience for the release is really important but that's a sidebar the back to your original question then the second the second biggest shocking moment was when you called me and told me that both HBO and Showtime had made an offer on the film Mm -hmm. and we had to decide between the two. That was a tricky conversation. If I, if memory calls, I think it was, I think it came down to dollar value though. It did come down to dollar value. And I mean, like it wasn't an, I don't know how much. We can't we can say how much say. Yeah. it was, but they were there. It was not a small difference. Yeah, um, that's what I was gonna say. Is it was yeah. not a inconsiderable mm-hmm. amount of money difference yeah. between the two. Um, and no, so that I, was the other one that I just I that wasn't even really on my radar. I don't think at that time. No, I had sold something to Stars before then. Um, and I, but I had never sold anything to either HBO or Showtime on this or been involved in anything that was sold to HBO or Showtime and was very happy that it ended up on Showtime. Um, the, it's also just a good movie, by the way. It's on AVOD, isn't it? Thanks. Yeah. It's, it's on Amazon Prime and Tubi right now. Okay. Yeah. You should watch it on Amazon Prime because no commercials. Um, Check it out. Yeah. yeah. You got Prime. But, Watch um, commercial free. Still really like that movie, by the way. That's like not even. Um, but going back to what you were saying about working with your assets as with a working with your distributor to amplify your assets, which yeah. is a paraphrase. But the, um, the way I say it is one of two ways. One, your distributor is best utilized as a megaphone, not a, not a scribe or they we can't create your voice. But we can help you amplify it. And we know how to take it to the right places so you get the, you have the best chance at amplifying your voice. It's never a 100% thing. And then the other thing that I say is basically the same thing. I just say it as we help you take what you've got from one to 10, but it's kind of on you to get from zero to one. And honestly, that's a harder part, speaking as a business person. But yeah, that's where it is. Yeah, I mean, we saw it time and time again at mm-hmm. Mutiny that the filmmakers who came in with ideas or with a social media following or a cast mm-hmm. and crew that were excited about the film and, and willing to promote or play ball, um, like all of those things really matter. They really do. They may seem insignificant. I think that's that's one of the misconceptions that people have with distribution. They think that their job is done once they get a distributor and let me tell you it's not like if if this process is done properly even at the highest level you know it's mm-hmm. like you don't think about this but you know when when Christopher Nolan makes his next film he's on the on the late tours circuit. late night circuit he's doing yeah. all day media events he's just sitting down and having the same conversation a hundred times as you know and and With an people exclusive interview every time even though it's yeah. the same information yeah sorry no that that's that's exactly right and he has his 10 talking points that are cleared to talk about you know and mm-hmm. and that's 
that happens even at a low level. And it may like when you're working at this lower level, it's sometimes harder to get people to, to care or to take, you know, to take interest, but that doesn't mean you don't work any less hard. You know, you have to have to work just as hard. So to get back to my point is if anyone's listening to this, who's finishing a film or making a film or thinking about making a film, don't just finish the film, no matter how good it is and hand it off to someone and just expect them to do all your promotional work for you Mm -hmm. work with them. And, and don't, I'm not saying like, don't be, don't be like, don't be bothering them. Yeah. Yeah. Don't be up in their grill. Don't like, but like ask what you can do to help them provide them with assets. You know, if you have a good trailer, if they like your trailer, if they like your art, whatever it is, work with them to do it, promote it as be excited about it, promote it on your social media, promote it on the make, you know, social media pages for the film. Like I Mm -hmm. said, get your cast and crew involved, get your family involved, get everybody, you know, to go out and see the film, no matter where it is, or to rent it on Amazon the first day that it drops and then leave a verified review. That stuff matters. Like, like Amazon is almost exclusively like, algorithmic driven so Mm -hmm. when you when you do that you have a better chance to get your film on the home page of like you know like up top so people will actually see and that goes for all the streaming platforms amazon Mm -hmm. is just an example you know get every if if you're a peacock exclusive get everyone to watch it on day one you know get the imdb ratings ask everyone and don't be afraid to ask people you know if you or at a film festival and you get a Q&A afterwards, ask people like, if you, if you liked my film, please go on IMDb and, and, and give it Rate a rating it right now. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And try to get those at the time. Cause people forget. It's just a thing. Um, no, you're 100% right on that. Um, the biggest thing I'd add there is if you are trying to push people to a certain traffic area, it is wise to concentrate to one area mm-hmm. just because you'll have more, a lot more impact. And if you get in that algorithm, there is some nebulous effect on other ones yeah. as well. And that's that's what we would always advise filmmakers when we were working mm-hmm. at Mutiny to do. Their film may have been on... Amazon, Vudu, Dish Network, DirecTV, across the board, you know, it might have been on all these platforms, but we would tell filmmakers, drive everybody to this link, make a bit.ly link so you can track and monitor who's going and how many people are clicking on it mm-hmm. uh, and send everyone to Amazon and ask them to to rate it, to to rent it and then rate it because those verified reviews really do matter and and when I mean we saw this happen with several of our films some of them just like you hit a certain threshold and it it goes up and then you know people who don't know about this film are watching it there's mm-hmm. a very clear line of demarcation that's just like this is everyone who knows about this film watching it and then it hit the algorithm and you can see the spike oh yeah that's definitely a thing um, and it happened with more than one of our films, I believe. Yeah. A lot of it was, but a lot of it was around working with the filmmaker to give them the best mm-hmm. practices for social media and all of this, and actually getting them to buy in. It's yeah. the 
Because if a filmmaker can't buy into their own film, how can they expect anyone else to, to some level? Yeah, and I think a lot of filmmakers do buy in, but oftentimes, and I I get this urge being a filmmaker, I would love to just, I would love nothing more than to just make a film, hand it off to somebody and then go be creative again. Mm-hmm. But you have to you have to view this this next step, the distribution step, the marketing step as a part of your job. It's a necessary part of your job. You you have to show up to work every day and do it whether you want to or not. And I'm not talking about like endlessly, you know, self-promoting, you know, if, if you feel mm-hmm. uncomfortable getting on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram bragging about yourself all the time that's okay but there's other there's other ways to do it there's other there's other you know means of of advertising and and get creative you know come up with things that we don't even know or think about like uh, yeah you it's really important to not just go like say oh social media ads are the most price effective thing that you can do it's not always true um depends on your goal depends on a lot of things if you're looking for pure CPI cost per impression, radio's cheaper. It's um, if you're targeting like a place where you have a, uh, you can just use the Aria Heart Radio app or a similar app to buy ad space in places like uh, wherever you're showing your film for that mm-hmm. theatrical run, and just do it for a week run there that can be extraordinarily cost effective in terms of awareness building but it's not just about one single thing and it's also why you want to work with a distributor or somebody who knows what is actually an effective use of money at this point because Mm -hmm. it's not always the best thing to do like buying ad time and on public access tv in wichita falls is not going to be very effective if you're only screening in new york and la yeah as an extreme example yeah and i mean like any filmmakers listening to this like think about going back to what i was saying earlier in the conversation think about all of this stuff before you start making your film like you get the script from that moment on everyone that you interact with about your film or on your film or that helps you with your film or that you know whether someone is whether it's the catering company people think movies are cool still you know Mm -hmm. like people love movies it's still not normal to know someone who's making and distributing films and doing it at a high level so as you're as you're doing making the film keep all these people in mind keep a list of everyone obviously you will because you'll have credits but you know, I think about that every time I see the scrolling credits. Mm-hmm. Those scrolling credits last, you know, can be anywhere from like three to five minutes. And there's hundreds, if not thousands of names on everyone's scrolling credits. Utilize all those people. Those people want to see the film. They want to be a part of this. Like, don't like make sure that they know about it, whether that's like an email list that you've been, you know, making, you know, compiling since you started your film or, you know, whether you're just like, you are actually in touch with all those people. So like, let them know when your film's premiering, let them know when, mm-hmm. you know, the film is out, let them know, like be in constant contact with them as, cause they're excited about it. Mm-hmm. Whether they, you know, like made sandwiches one day on the film or they are like the art director, they want to share that with all their friends and family too. 
So mm-hmm. what I find is a lot of people, you know, you, you get to the end of the process and maybe it's been in post for six months to a year. And then the directors or the producers just aren't even talking to anybody anymore. They're just mm-hmm. like, and then like the cast and crew find out that, you know, the film came out weeks after it came out and that's, they don't care <laughs> now because they, they don't feel like they were included. Yeah, no, that's, um, that's accurate. And it, it's, it's similar to how you should deal with your crowdfunding backers in yes. a way. Um, you should be updating them regularly and you should be making sure that they know when they're going to get their swag because that's at yeah. least part of why they did it. And if you have some budget left over, which is a big if, yeah, some luck. sort of tangent of physical object that you can give your crew that they'll think of your movie after on the last day of shoot is a good thing to do. Um, But again, if you have the money, because that, yeah, we're all putting it on the screen most of the time. But um, I did have a couple things that I wanted to get uh, your opinion on from the perspective of a filmmaker who straddles the line of a distribution executive, however you want to call that. Um, And the first one would be what did you think when you actually heard a bit about the uh, payment lags? Well, yeah. I mean, this is something we dealt with just Mm -hmm. as a filmmaker Mm -hmm. is is we you hear about a deal mm-hmm. and then you wait months uh, you know even possibly up to 6 months or longer to then get paid for that deal and it's it's very difficult for some people even when they're explicitly told mm-hmm. this is how long it's going to take it's hard for them to understand why it's going to take that long you know like for instance you know i would i told my my parents you know like when when after we made goodland that it got a deal and it was this amount of money and you know and then after that not all the time but like they would be like so have you seen any of that money yet i'm like nope it's still coming i told you it's gonna be a while (laughs) you know they were just like curious i think they thought for a while that i was uh you know being taken advantage of or something Mm -hmm. just because that's not it's not always that's not necessarily it's my nice suits that's why people think that it's the that that lag in time Mm -hmm. isn't standard in every business uh it's not standard in most yeah yeah in most businesses but there's a reason for that is because who the the platforms are getting their money in you know and they're 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 calculating streams and rentals and purchases and then there has to be a cutoff date for that and then they have to pay out the distributor and then sometimes the distributors will have you know they the distributors can't function on you know they're working with all the platforms and thousands mm-hmm. of filmmakers and all of you know all of these things they can't just cut a check as soon as that money hits the bank. Like that's not how it works. They have, Mm -hmm. you know, standardized 
payout structures that they have to adhere to as well for cash flow reasons for their own business. Mm -hmm. So you're working on two or three or four different companies, major corporations, cash flow to finally trickle down to you. And I say trickle down it just in time more than anything else. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, it it's surprising when you first find out, oh man, like the sound, this deal sounds great or it's killing it on AVOD right now. My film is doing great on Tubi. And then you have to wait. Six months to, six to get months. six to nine, sometimes nine months. It's actually not yeah. that uncommon for it to be nine. Um, But the... That is a real thing, and that doesn't necessarily mean that your uh, distributor is hiding something from you, especially no. if they're actually picking up your calls. That said, always, always keep at least a little bit of an eye on your distributor until you have. Sure. Uh, yeah. Trust. And again, yeah. you know, this isn't like a, a a blind statement to trust all distributors. You know, it's like I don't trust all anything. <laughs> Like, like definitely do your diligence, mm -hmm. but you know, like I said, if they have, if a distributor has earned your trust and, and you feel like you can believe them and, or they have paid you in the past, you know, that's something we dealt with Ben uh, with mutiny yeah. is some deals come through and we can cut that check right away. Mm -hmm. And we always tried to do that when we could do that to keep goodwill with the filmmakers because mm -hmm. we knew there were things that were coming and, and not everyone's going to do that. I'm not saying if your distributor doesn't do that, mm -hmm. that they're bad or wrong. I'm just saying that that is, you know, that is something that we decided to do as a company because we were just starting and we wanted our, we wanted goodwill with our filmmakers. We wanted them to know that, you know, Mm -hmm. I mean, we there's, were trustworthy. It's true. There's also a reason we called the company Mutiny. Um, yeah. It was a a lot of the members of the company who started understood that there is something of a CD element in much of the industry. Not all of the industry. I'm not saying everybody is. After all, I'm a producer's rep, and <laughs> if I thought all producers' reps were like that, I don't know what I'd do. But the uh, big thing there is just keeping an eye on and being aware of the arena you're playing in basically yeah. and it's noteworthy um anyway so the next question i had on you as a filmmaker straddling both lines what did you think of art changes in general art changes so actually, let's let's keep that. Let's make that more specific to start. What did you think of the art changes on Goodland when you did that film? I okay. So just to give everyone a little bit of of context to what Ben is talking about, um, you know, I'm a filmmaker. I'm an artist. I I I have ideas of how things should look. I'm you know, this <laughs> is an aesthetic medium. It's very visual, obviously. And so filmmakers oftentimes have ideas of how things should look. And and sometimes they're absolutely right. You know, like good taste. There's a difference between good taste and then sometimes you just see art that's just, okay, this person may be good at, good at filmmaking, but they don't understand Photoshop or couldn't afford mm -hmm. good art. Like, and that's also fine. Distributors will come in and like help you out there. 
but I'm talking about when, when a film would come in and have good art, but we would deem it not marketable. And that's where mm-hmm. I fell with Goodland. Like we mm-hmm. had a, a beautiful poster um, that looked like something you might see on the criteria, Criterion Edition, mm-hmm. you know, Blu-ray release. Not that we were ever going to get that, but that was kind of the style in which you would you would you you would agree with that, right? That yeah, I'd say that like, that's an accurate description. Yeah, it didn't get across what the film was about at all. Mm-hmm. Not even a little bit. It just looked nice. <laughs> and so, going into distribution, there were elements in the film. This is a uh, crime thriller with some heist elements to it. Mm-hmm. And they obviously wanted to bring all of that to the forefront. Um, And I understood the instinct to do so. And I, I don't, you know, when I first saw the art, it wasn't like my vision for the film or what I thought. And then the more I looked at it and the more I thought about it, the more I realized like, this is going to give it the best chance to succeed. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and there was also parts the in my film in particular, there's all these layers of things that you're kind of like discovering as you're watching the film up to the point where you realize, spoiler mm-hmm. alert, that there is a heist element going on. And then the bank robbers have really cool masks. But that's mm-hmm. supposed to be kind of a surprise in the film. Mm-hmm. Well, when you put the bank robbers with a really cool mask on the DVD cover, you're not really hiding anything you know um mm. so there was a part of me that was like well artistically i i don't like this but i understand that a film of this size needs all the help it can get mm. and the masks are cool like the masks i get it are quite cool you did a uh didn't you just grab those randomly somewhere at a gas station no we had we had those customly made so the if you're to google the film i'm sure the image will pop up but they are mm-hmm. uh they are coyote skull mm-hmm. bank robber masks so it looks like a, a canine skull mm-hmm. um and then the robbers wear black hoods over it and you know it kind of has this very like almost halloween horror film look to it mm-hmm. though that's not you know what they are i i just you know just going into the creative decision behind that i thought every great bank robbing film has mm-hmm. iconic masks whether it's the presidents in point break or the nuns in the town you know I, I, or the I, isn't there one with santas too uh yeah I, uh reindeer games that i forgot that that was a uh in there i i still <laughs> am annoyed that that film came out in june I, I haven't gotten past that iconic though i mean like it you is remember you're right it. yeah it's it, um not that Goodland is iconic by any stretch of the imagination, but that's just the the creative intent. So just going back to mm-hmm. art, I understand the impulse or the want for a distributor to put that up front to sell to sell mm-hmm. the film. And ultimately it worked. It absolutely worked. I learned my lesson right then and there. So when I got into distribution, I had a better time talking to filmmakers about doing the same thing to their art. I also wanted to include them. I had to explain to them, okay, the, your art looks great, but we can't use it for you know X, Y, and Z mm-hmm. reasons. We want to come up with something more commercial. We'd like you to sign off on it. Mm-hmm. You know, like we would like you to agree to this because we don't want to hold anyone's film hostage or do anything or misrepresent a film because 
that's something you dealt with, Ben, with oh, misrepresentation yeah. of art and film. We don't want to market it as something that it's not. We just want to highlight the the most marketable aspects of what it actually is. Completely. And this kind of falls under the same heading as we want to amplify your voice, not create something yeah. from it, basically. It's a... Um... Okay, last question from the filmmaker's perspective. I know how you feel about this, but uh, <laughs> for those who don't, how do you feel about distributors retitling a film? Again, with with the filmmaker's consent and conversations being had, I feel like it's okay. It, especially if a film comes in with a with either like Sometimes a filmmaker will come up with a ludicrous or grabby title that really does get your attention, but maybe you can't use, you know, or maybe Mm -hmm. it's not great, or maybe their title is just really bad. Or again, maybe it doesn't have anything to do with what their film is actually about. Um, So I'm not the biggest fan of retitling a film though i i mean we've had several instances where we had conversations with filmmakers and they understood and Mm -hmm. ultimately agreed i can only think of one retitle we did um i think the others were done by the filmmakers i think you're right i I can think of two i won't no names we can do it off off my yeah we'll we'll say there but the we we i i think we both know what they are um but the yeah, I mean, I think that a distributor shouldn't change your title unless they have really good reason to. Like, yeah. and one way to protect yourself against this happening in a bad way is um, to give to start with a better title. Like, most of the time, mm-hmm. distributors won't change it unless we have to. It's a lot of yeah. work. It doesn't make sense. But like, pretty sure this story got told at least in its majority in the majority of it uh, in a different episode. But I represented this film called The Restaurant when I got it. And even when I told them, I said, the distributor's going to change this name because it doesn't index well. If you're going to do, do you want to change the name now so that that doesn't happen? And the director didn't want to. The producer did. He yielded. Eventually ended up being called The Devil's Restaurant, which is weird because it's a vampire movie. (laughs) Um, But... um, yeah, and they, there's a lot of marketing stories on that. Um, so that's episode five, folks. But it's <laughs> a good, it's a good example of how that happens, and it's also a decent example of how you can prevent some of these things uh, from your distributor. Like the biggest thing on the restaurant. If they had changed it to the demons restaurant or the vampires restaurant, that wouldn't work. But um, something along those lines solves this issue entirely. But yeah. it also dovetails into the fact that a lot of the crew wouldn't help promote because they felt it was being mismarketed and they didn't realize that most of that was on the other ends, not anything to do with the filmmaker. Yeah. So that's a uh, that's that. Well, again, open communication with your mm-hmm. with your cast and crew would help that. Uh, also, yeah, I mean, just just another example of like thinking ahead to distribution while you're in the early stages of your film. 
And mm-hmm. I'm not trying to harm anyone's artistic integrity. I'm not saying everything needs to be a superhero film. That's not what I'm saying at all. Write the film that you want to write, but be thinking about what, be thinking about like, what are, what is the poster? What is the title? What are the trailer moments? Like be thinking about those things because that's really going to help you, you know, craft, I think your film, ultimately your entire film but then also, you know, like your your marketing campaign on the backside. Entirely. Um, last question before we move to the final three. Okay. Um, can you give an idea of how you cut a good trailer? Mm-hmm. Okay. So I don't know if this was touched on a whole lot, but that is what I did a Mm -hmm. lot of my time at Mutiny was cut trailers. Um, We kind of, I know we kind of touched on it, but like, and that, that's something that really always surprised me is that we would get a lot of trailers in, or even I would see other independent filmmaker trailers. And sometimes they're just like scenes from the movie or they're like not really cut together or the music doesn't blend. And my first question that I would always say to Ben or the rest of the team, I would just say like, have these people ever seen a trailer before? And I don't mean (laughs) that, like, I'm not putting anyone on blast or anything, but like, that's my number one bit of advice for if you're, if you're actually in charge of cutting your own trailer or you're hiring someone to cut a trailer, watch a lot of trailers. It's just like what we, what filmmakers do to make films we watch a lot of films we read a lot of scripts ideally you know if you're if you're a writer like it's no different with the marketing materials like watch a lot of trailers like you will start to see patterns you will start to see when people where the music cues change where the needle drops come in where the sound goes completely silent where you're going to have a massive hit where you need to have a, a ramp up you know, when title cards come in, map, like pick five of your favorite trailers and watch them on repeat. And then really like once you get past like the excitement of seeing that trailer and being reminded of the film, like study it, like really, really like look to see what the editor is doing. Okay, there's a person talking here and they're showing, you know, clips from part of the movie that may have nothing to do with what he's saying, but they're just like, getting more of the film in there for for you know marketing purposes or to make it look cooler and then oh i've seen this film and i know that those two conversations don't actually happen with each other but they cut it together because it's representative of what's happening in an entire film because you know a hollywood theatrical trailer is two and a half minutes a lot of time mm-hmm. on the indie side we cut 90 to two minute trailers mm-hmm. um and so you have or 90 seconds, excuse me. So you have 90 seconds, 90 to 120 seconds. There's not a lot of time to waste. Yeah, to get across your film. And so, you know, do it and do it in an exciting way and use use cool title cards and, and use awesome sound effects and use, like, pay attention to this sound design. Like, that's another thing. Like, on your 10th time going through the same trailer, like, watch it with your eyes closed just mm-hmm. or don't watch it but listen to it with your eyes closed and like listen for again the music cues and the dialogue and the, the sound design in the background 
And once you start to really do that, mm-hmm. you'll you'll start to understand how trailers operate. And then it's kind of like, you know, you see the matrix. Now when I see a trailer, I can't un I'm it's hard for me to just watch a trailer now. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm watching the like the art form. Because it is, it is its own it's its own art form, whether you know it's not maybe the highest form of art, but cutting trailers is its own thing you may be an Mm -hmm. incredible feature editor but not be able to cut a trailer and vice versa yeah but they're they're different skill sets it's an entirely different skill set and if you happen to be in film school while you are uh watching this or listening to this um, and are in post-production, you should consider some sort of specialization, and trailers are an underutilized one that actually yeah. allow you to be in the industry itself, as opposed to the corporate side. So, yeah, well, we could easily have you back on to talk about m- a lot more of that, but uh, we are already over, so... Whatever you want. You're always welcome back, man. Um... So the last, the three questions I ask all my guests. The first, what are your top three favorite movies as it stands right this second now can change in 10 seconds. Just what are you vibing on? What am I vibing on? Right, right. Okay. So, um, Raiders of the Lost Ark, uh, talk about, you know, just being able to like, you could turn the sound off on that film and really just study the camera movements. I know that's cliche to say probably, you know, any filmmaker knows that, mm-hmm. but like, honestly, that, that movie just moves in, yeah. in a way that like that, that movies don't really move anymore. I mean, movies move faster now they cut faster, but that film, like you, you can just, of any film, a lot of ground. I, I rewatched it like last week. It was, yeah. A lot more, and actually, that was in part because uh, Patrick Ray's number one pick was also Raiders. So, oh, nice, nice, yeah. yeah. I mean, like, I think it's a filmmaker's film mm-hmm. too because it's like it's so beautiful. Of all the films that I can think of, if you lay out the timeline and threw a dart at it, like mm-hmm. you could probably make a poster of that frame. Like all every frame in that movie is yeah pretty incredible. Um, I really love Goodwill Hunting that's a okay. different side of the filmmaking you know that's less less visually uh you know in the filmmaking side of things i love the mm-hmm. story behind the film almost as much as i love the film you know just that they they wrote it and just like believed in the film and wouldn't let mm-hmm. anyone else star in it but themselves you know that's the the idealist in me that's true and for then, Rocky as well isn't it it is yeah absolutely yeah stallone wouldn't let anyone else mm-hmm. uh act in it but him it was his he wrote it for himself and he stuck to his guns and here we are that doesn't always work it, it, no. it works it a lot it, it works it fails a lot more frequently than it works yeah. just for clarity since there's a reason we we brought up two examples of it and that uh, those are probably the two everyone knows yeah probably <laughs> um um and number three, this one is this one's my fun pick. I like to throw this one out just to curveball everybody, um, because it's like 
not the best movie ever made or maybe even a great movie but i just love men in black and i said it's that i think a I good said, movie yeah. yeah i mean if you're like if you're at all interested in just like the way you know a modern screenplay moves um that film is is really good um ed solomon who wrote it is i think a, a great writer he's recently teamed up with Soderbergh and doing a lot of work with him but you know and and read about the the backstory of that film because it was Mm -hmm. a hell of a ride to get it made and off the ground and the script changed a million times and I know that's like kind of a very pop culture film from the past Mm -hmm. you know but it's one of those movies that when you watch now it it also came at that time in the 90s where uh, practical effects Mm -hmm. and CGI were I think at like the the pinnacle of like the, the, their intersection where it, would, yeah. it made just as much sense to do either one it's yeah i it's a good pick um yeah. it's a good movie um yeah and i mean along the same lines with the with the visual effects you know you can look at jurassic park terminator 2 uh men in black that was that time period where i mean the matrix they were kind of getting it right before we just went to everything mm-hmm. is shot you know on green screens now um so yeah that's my that's my left field fun pick those are good picks um i don't do this super often but i feel like it today so i will um mine would be stardust nice uh the prince of egypt dreamworks animation and I'm gonna go with Demolition Man again. I did I did Demolition Man nice. on another one, but it's it's still solid. It's it is it's a it's a solid solid action flick for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um if I had to do one that wasn't used before, I'd say Broken Arrow. But the uh that is that. Second Loving those those nineties action flick picks. Good. I they they are my soft spot. Um yeah. if I could make like if I were to just EP movies and make just crappy ripoffs of them for the rest of my life, I'd be happy. It's yeah. just um the so if you could go back in time and give yourself one piece of advice, uh what would that advice be and when would you give it to yourself? You don't have to change any actions from your previous life or end mm-hmm. up differently, but one piece of advice. You can if you want, but one piece of advice. I think on the filmmaking side, uh, it would be that, like, no one owes you anything. So, like, don't operate with a chip on your shoulder. I think mm-hmm. that kind of came off pretty quick. You know, I think by the time mm-hmm. I had gotten Goodland in the can, I was starting to realize that. But I think a lot of early young filmmakers, myself included, we operate on ego and you have to have a certain level of ego to even just be in this industry because you're 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 using or you're you're taking up someone's time 90 minutes to two hours you're asking for a lot of time from someone to say like i got something to say you should you should hear it so there's a little bit of that but i think a lot of young filmmakers myself included when we get into this it's just like i made a thing why aren't i famous why am i why am i not directing michael bay level features he's no good i'm better than him uh michael bay is an incredible technical director by the way and i will fight anyone 
Who argues? He needs needs Uh, better writers. He needs yes. Yeah, I am story not his thing. Am I a big fan of all his films? No, (laughs) but from a technical standpoint, he he's forgotten more than I'll probably ever know. Mm -hmm. Uh, But having said that, you know, I think a lot of filmmakers have that attitude, and and, you know, we Mm -hmm. we even run into it on the distribution side because young isn't necessarily an age. Young is Mm -hmm. experience. I think you know, you know, I think mindset. uh, more than experience yeah so the advice i would say is just like chill out Mm -hmm. like no one owes you anything like just keep working keep keep honing your craft keep getting better and eventually you know when you're making the level of stuff that you know deserves attention you'll get attention yeah it's i meant to bring this up earlier but i forgot um oh well the myth of if you make a great film it'll find its audience yeah is a myth and no matter how who told you they were wrong it's what it is yeah and that but that you know that's all we can do we can all you know we can we can just work on making a bit a better film the next time out and when you make a good one if it doesn't get the attention you think it deserves you know just go back out there and try it again yeah i've had I have stopped paying attention to, too close of attention to my podcast stats because I have no idea what's going to pop off anymore. It's just a... <laughs> yeah. um, it's that but, William Goldman quote, right? Yeah, basically. That nobody thing. knows anything. Um, yeah. The uh, And the final question, uh, the hardest of all of them, all three, all day, all of them. Uh, where uh, Where can people find you? And what are you looking for from anybody who might be watching or listening to this podcast? Um, so I surprisingly I'm not super active on social media. I do check, I do check, I guess Twitter or Instagram. You can find me, um, J Doke on Twitter. I believe the same, or maybe J W Doke on Instagram. If you want to connect, feel free to send me a message. I don't get very many, so I will probably respond. <laughs> uh, you can also find me on IMDb Pro. My my uh, my email's listed there too, so feel free to reach out if anyone has anything to say. Uh, and what am I what am I plugging? Is that what I'm? Yeah, to be basically. Saying? Uh, so I have a film out right now that I co-wrote with uh, Ben and Jacob Burghardt, the directors, uh, called Headcount. Look for the Headcount 2023 version. There was one made, I believe, in 2018, but mm-hmm. the 2023 version I wrote, it's out on on streaming platforms right now. So if you want to check out some of my work, that's a good place to do it. And then, uh, as you said earlier, Goodland is on Amazon Prime and Tubi. Cool. I'll put either uh, Amazon or if I can find an AVOD link for YouTube, I'll do that because they prefer native links. But other than that, um, yeah, thanks for coming out. And uh, also shout out to Shout Factory on that. Yes. Yes. Shout Shout Factory distributed headcount. Yes. Cool. Um. So again, thank you, Josh. You're welcome anytime. And thanks for having me, Ben. It's good. Thank you for listening. Uh, this has been the Movie Moolah Podcast. I remain your host, Ben Yenny. If you like this podcast, please like, comment, subscribe, and share it with a friend. It really does help at this stage. 
Um, if you're on YouTube, hit that bell. If you're anywhere else, hit auto download because that also helps with that algorithmic spread we were talking about earlier. And check out the my free independent film business resource pack for two free ebooks. These two and a whole lot more. Thanks very much.